Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are beginning our coverage of Wolfe's second long work, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which was published in 1972. Yeah, we're going to be covering this much the same way we've covered other Wolf's works in the past, but there is an exception. We'll be treating this work really as though we haven't read it before. Glenn is pretty familiar with this as a work. I've read it a couple years ago, but because I'll be running the discussion, I'm going to treat it as though it's the first time I'm reading it, and I'm going to be performing for the sake of discussion a close reading of this text. Now, we'll be taking this first novella, at least, in short sections, usually at about 10 pages. And we will give you the page numbers that are found in the 1994 Orb edition of The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which contains all three novellas that we'll be covering back to back. The novella is separated into sections through kind of little stars on the page uh, that break it up. And we're going to be doing probably one or two of those an episode. So, Glenn, I don't know if you have more you want to talk about the way we'll be covering this, but if not, we should talk a little bit about the publication history of this book. Right. You've already uh, alluded to it a little bit, Brandon. The Fifth Head of Cerberus is often called and always marketed as a novel, but uh, in in fact, it's, it's actually three novellas. And each of these novellas takes place in the same speculative world that Wolf has uh, imagined for us, and they even share some characters. But the whole thing was not conceived by Wolf as a single story. Rather, Wolf wrote the first novella in 1970. This is the one that bears the same title as the entire collection. And he tried to sell it, and, and he did sell it. Damon Knight bought it for his annual anthology, Orbit, and it appeared in Orbit 10 in 1972. But even before that, the editor of Scribner had read the novella when Wolf wrote it at a, a sci-fi writing workshop and told him that if Wolf could write two more novellas to go with it, he could publish the whole thing as a book. And that volume came out later in 1972, after the first novella had been published separately. And that collection of these three novellas is what we're going to be reading for the next several months. It's going to take us about four to six episodes to cover each novella. And at the end of each novella, we're going to have a wrap-up episode. And part of that is because of the way we're treating these stories, which is to pretend we haven't read them before. And to do a close reading, you really aren't going to be looking ahead at what everything means at the end of the story. But when we hit the end of each of these stories, we are going to have a really strong understanding of what techniques, themes, characters, all that's going on that Wolf is employing to create each of these novellas. Yeah, so for this first novella, we're going to take five episodes to recap it, discussing it along the way. Nothing new there. This is more or less how we did Operation Ares as well. And then we're going to have a wrap-up episode where you and I, Brandon, discuss the whole thing. But then we're going to have a seventh episode in which Wolf scholar Mark Aramini is going to return to have another conversation with us. And I have to say that uh, he's already mentioned to me what he has in mind to talk about, and I'm pretty excited to hear more. Yeah, this is a story that Mark has a lot to say about, and he's done a lot of great work on this. And for the record, Glenn, I mean, I just can't wait for us to really dive into this story as well. I love this book for a number of reasons. These first 10 pages we're covering today are breathtaking. So 
I think we just need to get right to it. Glenn, why don't we start with the recap of this first two sections of the fifth head of Cerberus? Yeah, we've got actually a lot of work to do just to even get through 11 pages of this text, but I'm really excited about it. Well, even before we get to the story proper, Wolf opens here with an epigraph from The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by that great romantic poet, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And the epigraph is this. When the ivy tod is heavy with snow, and the owlet whoops to the wolf below, that eats the she-wolf's young. I love this epigraph. I love the rhyme of the ancient mariner. In the discussion, we're going to go through the literary references and inspirations that are in this story, including this epigraph. So I'm not going to say too much about it right now, but I will say this, that the, the rhyme of the ancient mariner is probably among the first weird stories ever written among the first bits of weird fiction ever written. And if our listeners want to pause the episode and take a break between the recap and discussion, this epigraph is taken from part seven of The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. So if you want to read the poem before you listen to the discussion, that's that's fine by me. But we should take note that <laughs> this is about a bird of prey attacking a wolf. And this is among the first time that Wolf references himself or his last name in fiction in a way that I think has profound meaning to the story he's writing. So it amuses me that we go straight from Coleridge into our proper opening of the novella, which draws on another of your loves. And this is Proust's In Search of Lost Time. And I'm just going to read this opening paragraph so that listeners who aren't reading along can get a sense of the majesty and the brilliance of this prose. Yeah. And in the discussion, I'll be reading the first paragraph of In Search of Lost Time to make the comparison here explicit. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm going to look forward to that. And you'll recall that I read this very same paragraph in our introductory episode. It was what I had brought to the table that day as an example of some of my favorite wolfish prose. So I'm excited to just get to read it again. Turns out that I might just like to read this paragraph out loud anytime people will let me. So the paragraph is thus. When I was a boy, my brother David and I had to go to bed early, whether we were sleepy or not. In summer, particularly, bedtime often came before sunset, and because our dormitory was in the east wing of the house, with a broad window facing the central courtyard and thus looking west, the hard, pinkish light sometimes streamed in for hours while we lay staring out at my father's crippled monkey perched on a flaking parapet, or telling stories, one bed to another, with soundless gestures. There's so much information packed into this paragraph that it's challenging to really break down what's going on. I will say that nothing really strikes you as odd. The sun does set in the West here. We're not given to a weird world or a foreign land so far in this paragraph. The thing that really jumps out at you is this phrase, my father's crippled monkey. That is the first alert that things are not what they seem, I think, in this novel. Right. It's fair to say that all of these other experiences are things that I've seen, experienced, know someone who has. I've not seen a person with a crippled monkey before. So we do know that we're in for a weird tale, a strange tale, a speculative tale of, of some sort. One of the things, of course, that we learn from this opening paragraph is that, like Proust, the, the fifth head of Cerberus is going to be a memoir. Our narrator is an adult. He's reflecting on his youth now with the clarity, or at least the new perspective, that comes with age and experience. Over the next few paragraphs, we learn a little bit more about our narrator's home and about his family. 
He and David sleep on the uppermost floor of the house, and the window there has a shutter of twisted iron to prevent a burglar from entering the house. And at first, of course, this statement sounds like it is the children, the narrator and his brother David, who might be in danger. But the narrator actually gives us a long explanation of why this wasn't the case. First, he tells us that children can be purchased quite inexpensively here in Port Mimizong. And just to be clear, we are talking about children being sold as slaves, and the narrator matter-of-factly explains that this just isn't a profitable enough business because there's so much supply of slaves of every kind, uh, but especially children. In fact, we learn here that his father used to be in the slave business uh, when demand for child slaves was higher than the supply, and that might even be the source of the family's fortune. Also, very subtly here, Wolf is cluing us in that we're in a speculative setting right now. We're going to a little bit more than just the monkey, right? It's not on Earth or or at least not the real Earth of our past or present. And there's going to be more on that later, of course. We're also told a lot of the narrator's thoughts about these things. We are firmly inside of the perspective of the narrator's mind. In this grouping of paragraphs, we get an instance of the narrator's dark imagination. The thing that gets him to think about what those bars mean on the window and why they're placed is a speculation about an imaginary burglar who would come and take the children. That's what turns the engine over in his imagination. And we get this real dichotomy with regard to the narrator's sense of his father. The narrator says he was once told that his father had formerly traded in children, but doesn't do it anymore because the market is poor. And in a few pages will be shown that the narrator is told something else that is patently false about his father. We're told that he believes his father cares nothing for him or his brother. So we have a man who objectively, from our point of view, as the information we're given, cares for a crippled monkey... (laughs) He used to deal in selling children. He quit only because it wasn't profitable, and he doesn't care for his children at all. And yet, I think this is something that the narrator just has not worked out in terms of assimilating into his understanding of his own father. We're also given the first description of the two brothers. David, a significant name here, as as we'll find out a little bit later on in our discussion, is blonde, and he has blue eyes we'll figure out later on. And the narrator is brown-haired and brown-eyed. This is kind of your classic, iconic twin imagery. You have the light twin and the dark twin. And I'm going to be excited to see what Wolf is doing with these brothers as the story goes on. There's another important bit of information that we learn here in this bit that you've just narrated for us here about the father not caring about them. At least the narrator doesn't think that their father cares about them. He comments on this after he tells his audience this, and he says that while he doesn't know if that was true, his father never gave him the least reason to doubt it, and then goes on to say that at the time, though, the thought of killing his father had never occurred to him. So there's a a little hint of things to come, which, of course, is magnificent narrative technique. You know, we can get back to the children's danger again here. There's another bit of evidence, another bit of reasoning that the narrator is going to offer. The last reason why the children would have been fine, they never would have been the object of burglary, of kidnapping, 
This reason is that their father's business depended on giving large bribes to the secret police. And because of that, paying a ransom for his children would leave him open to a thousand ruinous attacks. Great phrase there. Uh, And because of that, he just wouldn't do it. If someone had actually abducted his children, he just wouldn't pay to get them back. So it's not a good business proposition for a burglar or a kidnapper to do that. Yeah, and this is kind of a dubious piece of information once again, is that not only would he not pay the money because he owes it to the secret police, the father is the most permanent feature of this master criminal organization that it's an immediate conflict to be an important fixture that maintains the status quo of criminality in Port Mimizan. And at the same time, the child believes that the father just wouldn't pay. But society demands the father's presence in this community. And so there's a lot going on that the narrator presents as a unified notion, but is immediately, objectively dichotomous. They diverge immediately when you think about them for a second. Yeah, as you say, we're just going to get narrative evidence that these things can't quite be true. His father's attitudes about his children anyway. And of course, that's going to be the central thing that this story is really taken up with. But in just these few paragraphs, we've learned, I think, some interesting and some important information about this family, right? One, we've learned this is a wealthy family. We also learned that that wealth derives from an illicit business. And I think it's also important to note that there's no mention of a mother. We don't know if she's coming, but we haven't encountered her here. Yeah, but that's not unusual for adventure fiction or speculative fiction or Victorian fiction, where there's always a dead mother or a parent that is absent and the children are kind of forced to raise themselves. This is a trope in literature that Wolf is going to really subvert, maybe not in this first 10 pages because the mother never comes up. But the fact that the mother doesn't come up doesn't really provide cause for alarm so far in the story. Yeah, I mean, this story might as well be Jane Eyre, but from the kid's perspective. In fact, there's some really great ways in which it is the exact plot of Jane Eyre, but from the perspective of the kids, not from the perspective of the new nanny. Well, now we're going to learn a little bit more about the boys and their daily life together in the next few paragraphs. There's a silver trumpet vine that has scrambled up the wall and partially covered this iron shutter. David's bed is under the window, and when they were kids, he used to amuse himself by snapping off branches of this vine and then whistling through the hollow stems. And in fact, he used to put four or five of them together and make panpipes out of them. And here is where we learn about the boy's nanny, the boy's tutor. This is a person named Mr. Million. Now, to be clear, up front, Mr. Million is a robot, and we'll learn more about him as we go. But during this part of the narrative... We learn that he has wide wheels that glide across the floor in perfect silence. We also learn that his head is essentially a monitor or a TV screen of some sort, and that his face is an image on that screen or or maybe in that screen. And this face resembles the boy's father, but it's not a precise image of their father. Yeah, it's not clear to me whether or not this is a precise image of the father. I am of the belief that it is a precise image of the father, but the narrator is so able to distinguish their character that he can't find anything recognizable in Mr. Million's face compared to his father. There are a few things I want to point out here as well. Number one, as the narrator is recalling these events with David and his silver trumpet vine panpipes, he 
tries to figure out where they are. And this is maybe the first reference of this first 10 pages to another piece of Wolf's fiction that we've covered, the recording. This is really what calls to mind for me. I'm going to point out two or three other places in this first 10 pages that I think reference Wolf stories in some oblique or explicit way. And I think that's going to be important to us in our discussion. David also with the pan pipe is not the first pan figure. Pan here is Peter Pan, not, not Pan the uh, the god. David maybe is meant to evoke or elicit eternal youthfulness as a character, just this light, carefree attitude. But more importantly, David the king from the Old Testament was a musician. And as we get more information about this world and the type of cosmos that it is embedded in, I think we're going to find some significance in the reinforcement of David as a kind of figure of good. That's in these 10 pages, and I can't remember what Wolf does here with David, I'll be honest, but I'm going to throw some theories out there that we'll be able to talk about in the discussion. Yeah, that's going to be really exciting, and I'm so glad that you saw the recording here. I did as well. This is really one of the benefits of doing this project the way that we have been one story at a time, chronological order, seeing Wolf develop as a writer, as a thinker, uh, as an artist, and making these connections. So uh, that's been really awesome. Let's dig into this little bit of the, the scene here where we get this connection. So we're told that Mr. Million would always confiscate David's pipes as soon as he heard them, which it seems to be something that happened pretty quickly. And the narrator never knew what Mr. Million did with those pipes. He even tells us that trying to figure this out had been a mental exercise when he was in prison. And so this, of course, another clue about things to come and what the narrator has gone through. I think, Brandon, you were referencing there in thinking about Peter Pan figures about the changeling, which is explicitly full of Peter Pan imagery. This memoir, this reflecting on your youth after going home again, after getting out of prison, is also that is what the changeling is about so we've got the changeling here and we're just about to get into the recording here as well and it's just great to see all of these ideas all of these feelings all of these experiences really just percolating in wolf's mind and coming out in his writing again and again but each time from a different angle from a different perspective adding something new to it yeah and i think this is absolutely on purpose. This is part of Wolf's technique as the author of this story as we work through understanding who the narrator is, because there are a lot of hints dropped as to the identity of the narrator of this story. We also learn a little bit about Mr. Million's character. Mr. Million is gentle. He would never break anything intentionally. And that is something that allows the narrator to consider that Mr. Million had hid these panpipes somewhere in the house, which sends the narrator kind of on a Scooby-Doo adventure uh, outside (laughs) the bedroom where he's returned to write his memoir. Finally, something happened, something sparks his memory now that he's back here in the house and he he recalls that mr million used to always lift his arm in a sort of salute as he left the room whenever he would confiscate something from the boys this memory then 
prompts the discovery of an accidental shelf high up in the doorframe. The narrator is able to stand on a chair and retrieve 47 dusty sets of panpipes. And this is really the imagery that is straight out of the recording, right? This features a narrator in, again, a similar circumstance and someone who has aged, who has returned to his childhood home. But in the recording, right, the narrator was reflecting on how he had caused the death of his uncle here, there's some clues that this narrator may have killed his father. That's not clear yet. But he's mentioned thinking about killing his father. He's mentioned that he's in prison. I think that's really quite fascinating. Yeah, it's marvelous. One thing I want to point out is that you you did mention that the narrator needs a chair. That indicates the size of Mr. Million, his bulk, his height, that he's able with a gesture of salute where his hand might just go above his eyebrow or maybe the crown of his television screen is or whatever it is, that that's where the lintel of the door is. But this narrator is far smaller than Mr. Million. It also tells us that the house is designed in such a way that Mr. Million could get around easily. It's designed with a massive robot nanny in mind. Another thing we learn here that's very important because it clues us into the narrator's mindset is that he finds a number of other small objects on this shelf above the door. And there are some of them which still fail to summon any flicker of response from the recesses of his mind. That's a quote from the story. But then he goes on to confabulate memories. And there are hints here, particularly when the narrator says things like, I suppose, or when we get to the classroom scene in a little bit where he's speculating, that this narrator is comfortable with free association of thoughts, with confabulation, and with creating a sense of identity out of the likelihood of events that come out of the past. That's very important to this story. And that's only to say that this is actually the real use of the unreliable narrator in literature. It's not about truth or falsity. It's about the psychological response evoked by the presence of objects or the presence of things, the need to create meaning out of absence. And I just love what Wolf is doing with that here in the story. Yeah, it's magnificent and it's it's really beautiful. In fact, I actually had intended to read the passage that you're, you're referring to here. So one of the things that they find is the small blue egg of a songbird. And I'm, I'm just going to read this description. It's a beautiful, it's beautiful prose, but it shows us exactly. It illustrates exactly what you're saying there. The narrator tells us, I suppose the bird must have nested in the vine outside our window and that David or I despoiled the nest only to be robbed ourselves by Mr. Million. But I do not recall the incident. This is, Marvelous. I mean, we do this all the time with our own lives. I mean, just think when we can't find our keys and we find them someplace, we start confabulating. We start trying to figure out what must have happened in order for the keys to be there or for um, the, the milk to be in the cupboard and the plate to be in the fridge or, you know, whatever. We all do these things. But it seems much more significant that this project of reconstructing his youth, reconstructing his, his childhood is of deep significance to him. Before we go on to the next scene, I will also say that there's also a broken puzzle made of the bronzed viscera of some small animal up there. That's also something of a theme here, some grotesquerie. 
Right. And the last item that's important is the broken key to the library. This is the library to port Mimizan, not to the inherited library that the narrator receives when he returns home. Yeah, this is a great memory that we get in this passage. Their father had a library in the house, but the children were forbidden to go there. But once, at a very young age, the narrator saw the library, and he recalls this huge carved door, and also the sick, sweet smell of formaldehyde coming from the laboratory that lay beyond a sliding mirror. This is probably an image that was 10 seconds of his life, but he remembers this so vividly with all of his senses. And he goes on to tell us that a woman in pink retrieved him, and he remembers her saying that his father had written all of the books in this library. And that he doubted it not at all. And this is the instance where we know that he has been told many things about his father and was willing to believe them as a child, whether or not they were true because his father didn't communicate with them. I think he really misunderstands his father, and we're going to talk about what's going on with his father in these first 10 pages. I will also note that the smell of formaldehyde would absolutely cause a much stronger sense memory response than the dipping of Madeline's in tea, which is the cause of the whole seven-volume novel In Search of Lost Time. Yeah, I think Wolf is is having a bit of a go at Proust and readers of Proust here. Uh, Yeah, that's a fantastic point. Well, now that we're on the subject of libraries, we're going to learn a lot more about the boys' daily life. Twice a week, Mr. Million would take the children to the city library, and these were the only times that the boys were allowed to leave the house. And they would go on foot because, as you say, Mr. Million is really big. And they would travel three blocks down Saltenbank Street, turn right at the Rue d'Astico to the slave market, and then a block beyond the market to the library. I'm going to do a little translation work here for the names of these streets, which do indicate what we'll learn in just a few moments, that the place where they are was once a French colony. Saltenbank is the French word for acrobat. It's basically just acrobat street. It's interesting here that uh, street is translated into English, but we still have Saltenbank as the the word of the street. So that's evokes something about what this street used to be, the street that they live on, and maybe something about the crippled monkey in some way. But Rue de Astico kind of translates as to like the street of maggots, which is where the slave market is. It, it, it evokes a sense of rot, of sliminess, of just, uh, of just disgust. And so in French, I think Wolf is playing with language here, saying like Astico is kind of a beautiful word, but translated, it's just the street of maggots. Yeah, it tells us everything we need to know about the place of slaves in this society, and especially when we take into account what the narrator has already told us about child slaves and the fact that there are so many of them, they're not even that expensive. That is pretty disgusting and makes me feel maggoty to think about a society that does that to to people and especially to, to children. And in fact, we learn a little bit more even about the market here because Mr. Million sometimes would actually want to stop here at this slave market. And he never bid on any of the slaves. But this pause lets Wolf tell us about the types of slaves sold here. And I, I find this very interesting in the, in the world building. There are domestic slaves. There are slaves used to carry litters for their owners, which is a, a form of transportation here in this city. 
But there are also fighting slaves. So there is some type of gladiatorial combat sport that happens in this city that's a, a popular form of entertainment and it's done by slaves and you can go to the market and you can purchase them and i think all of this information together tells us a lot about this society it tells us what amusement sits into how it values people really tells us whether it thinks all homo sapiens are actually people for example not only about the society, but the slave market itself has an entertainment value. I mean, Mr. Million's fascination with slavery here is something I'm going to want to talk about. But the boys buy fried bread from a stall in the marketplace and eat it patiently while Mr. Million watches the market, the slave market go on around him. This is just a lively marketplace that itself, as a marketplace, holds entertainments even for children who aren't slaves. It's a nice contrast to the library. In fact, in maybe in, in a similar way to the, the binary contrast of the physiology of the, the two brothers and, and some of the other dichotomies I think that we're seeing here. So now we, we come to the library and I have to say that I think this library is just awesome. And this is probably the only part of this story that fills me with like intense envy. But it also reminds me of my childhood when I used to get to, to run loose in a library and just look at books randomly, really without a whole lot of reason or pattern. And those experiences, I feel like if I were writing the memoir of my childhood, would occupy a real central place, though they probably also only happened twice a week or so. Yeah, for me too. I still remember the smell of the library, the public library I, I went to as a child. And in fact, when I go back home to visit my parents and I sometimes step in there, I just go to feel like the cool air and drink water from the warm water fountain and smell the old smells of this place. And it's one of the best experiences probably of childhood is going and running loose in a library. Yeah, it's so true. And it's funny to hear you say that. I, I like it validates my own experiences. Every time I go back to Chicagoland to visit my family, I make a special point of going in the library. I'm not about, I'm not checking out books there. I just want to go in there again. Well, Wolf describes this library building as wastefully large. It's a building that had been used for government offices in these old French speaking days that you mentioned earlier. And in those days, the building had stood in a park, but, and I love this phrase, the park had since died of petty corruption, which is to say that it's been sold off piece by piece. So rather than being surrounded by this nice green space, you know, trees and flowers and such, the library building now is crowded in by a clutter of shops and tenements. But the inside remains pretty awesome, though old. Wolf describes this interior as peeling grandeur, another phrase that I absolutely adore. The building is 500 feet tall. It's domed, and this center of it is essentially one massive open room. There's this spiral walkway that ascends all the way to the top, 500 feet up, and the library shelves line that walkway all the way up. This is the library of my dreams. It's amazing. It also evokes to me, and this is the second Wolf story reference, this is actually the third because we brought up the, the Changeling and the recording. This really reminds me of House of Ancestors. Here we have this single helix walkway inside of this massive structure that is just full of the knowledge of the past. And here I think Wolf is referencing his past story. Oh, he absolutely is. And it's really awesome that 
you know, we read House of Ancestors, a second story we read. I complained when we covered House of Ancestors about how long he went on explaining about exactly how you would construct that World's Fair exhibit that he was writing as an engineer for other engineers just in case someone wanted to actually do it. Here he's just describing this place with senses and with emotional responses. He's not telling us how to build it. And he has figured it out. And it's amazing. It is amazing. And I think, I mean, by the time we get to the discussion, and maybe in just a few moments, our listeners and and you, Glenn, will understand why I'm pointing out all these references to old wolf stories. Yeah, and I can't wait to to get to that. Let's dig into this memory. So it, it was easy for the boys to run ahead of Mr. Million, which is interesting to learn about this robot. And they would often have some time to do what they liked before their lessons would begin. And in particular, the narrator used to love climbing the bookshelves like ladders. And right now he is thinking of one particular day when he made it all the way to the dome, unsupervised, where he found only four books on the shelf because the librarians, we are told, really hated making this 500-foot climb to reshelve books. I can empathize with that, I suppose. And this whole paragraph here is really something of a joke for Wolf's friends and readers. And and I think it'll be fun to go through these books. So you neglected to mention why... He's running all the way up to the dome, to the final section of the alphabet. And it's because he remembers that the lady in pink told him that his father had written all of the books in his library, and he's hoping to find one of his father's books in these shelves. This is our first hint here that the narrator's last name must start with W or something like that, because that's the section he's looking in. So he he does find uh, four texts. I have notes on three of them. And I'm sure, Glenn, you'll be able to cover any absence of knowledge I have here. Uh, The first text that he looks up is a misplaced astronautics text called The Mile Long Spaceship by Kate Wilhelm, which is a novel that was written in 1963. The next book is called Monday or Tuesday, and it is by Virginia Woolf. Our first kind of explicit hint of the type of name our narrator is looking for. He's hunting around in the W's. And then the third one, Glenn, I think you'll have something to say about it, is a book about the assassination of Trotsky. It must have been written by somebody with a, a W or V last name. Yeah, this is actually by Bernard Wolf. Wolf here spelled exactly like Gene Wolf's last name. It's in, and it's great. These two books, the Virginia Wolf and the Bernard Wolf, though their names are spelled differently, are are leaning against one another. The name of this book, by the way, is The Great Prince Died. Kind of a classic of, um, I don't know if you're a Trotsky file, this is a classic book. That's amazing. Uh, And that just reinforces what we're learning about this narrator. And the last one is a crumbling volume of Werner Vinge's short stories. And this is amazing because at this point, Werner Vinge was not really a well-known writer and Wolf must have read something he liked of his in a magazine and is immortalizing him here in the fifth head of Cerberus. And it's just an act of friendship and beauty, I think, to see this. Um, but the reason why it's placed with uh, W's, the narrator thinks, is because the faded V. Vinge on the spine looks like whinge. Yeah, and that's just really pretty hilarious. I think all all on its own. I want to go back to just talk about the mile-long spaceship. There's some things I want to dig out there. Uh, One thing I thought was uh, funny, Brandon, you you pronounced her last name, Wilhelm, because, of course, 
the narrator says that this is a, a German, but Kate Wilhelm is an American writer, so she pronounces the, the W like a W and not like a V. Kate Wilhelm had a great career. She wrote this really awesome novel called Where Late the Sweet Bird Sang, which won the Hugo. This is one that I read one summer in my army days uh, during my Jesuits in space phase. Read it over about a two and a half day period. This is a, a book that I actually have Proustian memories of. I can almost taste the coffee and I can, I know exactly what mug I was using, you know, that day reading that book. It's a beautiful story. Kate Wilhelm was married to Damon Knight, the famous and extraordinarily important and influential sci-fi editor and writer. And this book, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, is dedicated to him and Wolf credits him for starting his whole career. More importantly, or sadly at least, Kate Wilhelm actually died only about a month ago from when we're recording this. It was not reported much in the news. She was her death was sort of overshadowed by uh, Le Guin's passing. But I hope that someday we'll read one of her stories for one of our monthly Patreon episodes. Oh, I would love to do that. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'd be really excited. I've not read any of her short work, but I know that she she has some and. I think that we should say here to pull out of the the sadness there that this obviously was meant to be funny for Wolf's friend, uh, Wolf's friends, really, right? For Damon Knight and for Kate Wilhelm. And frankly, this may even be a joke that they had already contrived in person some June evening when Jean and Rosemary and Damon and Kate were having dinner together or drinking wine out on some patio that they had made up this whole bit to begin with. And now here it is in this book, Immortalized. And and that's just really great to see some of that real life maybe bleeding in here. But Wolf has also slipped in a nice bit of world building within this joke. Because what we learn here is that our narrator lives in a world in which astronautics is real enough that there are manuals about it and that he doesn't think that's science fiction when he sees it in the title of the book. He assumes it's a a manual, that it's an instructional book about how to sail between the stars because that's something people do. It's a practical matter for his society. Right. And we get a reference to that. Just two paragraphs down from this. We also learned something about the narrator beyond the joke. And and this is what I've been hinting at with the wolf explicit wolf references to his past stories in this text that it is likely and there there's going to be one more piece of really solid evidence that it is likely that the surname of this narrator is Wolf. Yeah, I mean I think we're going to get some more evidence here we'll talk more about it, but it it absolutely has to be and that there are some interesting things, I think, going on with that uh, in the text. Well, I think we just probably spent, what, 10 minutes talking about this one paragraph. It's a beautiful and hilarious paragraph. But I think we'll finish up this part of the library scene before we go on and get to really the core of what's happening in the library. So the narrator also used to like to get up to the very top of the building because he could take this rusted iron catwalk at the base of the dome and stick his head outside and survey the city. And in this episode, this memory, lets Wolf tell us a little bit more about this world that he's imagined. From here, the narrator can see his own house to the west. There's orange trees on the roof. I mean, this is really beautiful imagery. And to the south, there is a harbor with sailing ships, wooden sailing ships. While he's thinking about the ocean, the narrator mentions that the tides are governed by St. Anne, and then mentions that he once saw a star crosser splash down in the water. Now, this is that explicit reference that you, you were mentioning. So, really, 
here we get more confirmation that this is a space frame civilization. And I think that, you know, here we can assume that St. Anne is a moon or something like that, and that we are somewhere far, far from Earth. And we are going to get more confirmation about that as we go. But it's gorgeous the way that Wolf peppers this information throughout in a way that feels wholly organic, that it feels like this is what the narrator is thinking about, that these details are at the periphery of the memory, that that what's really important is him remembering his youth, not the spaceship that he saw splash into the ocean. Right. And this imagery of him thrusting his head through the stone really recalls the epigraph of the story. Here we have the owl and the wolf kind of together. The birds are explicitly referenced here. And I think this is just something to keep in mind as epigraphs are really meant to expose certain themes or meanings in the story or call our attention to imagery that the author really wants us to pay attention to. And this is the first real explicit bird imagery that associates our narrator with the birds. And so we have to wonder, is this narrator, based on what we read in the epigraph, uh, the cause of destruction of the wolf line in some way? Yeah, and in particular, the she-wolf's young, right? There is something about killing children, about the about eating, consuming children here. And yeah, you're right. This imagery is absolutely in play in this scene. That's a really awesome catch. Well, we'll come back to that as we get into the later sections of this novella. But for now, I think let's get to the heart of this library scene. The boys are really here for lessons from Mr. Million and lessons that are dependent on volumes in the library or things in the science collections that are housed in the building's wings. We learn a little more here about the differences between the two boys. The narrator loves life sciences, but David prefers languages, literature, and law, which is just to say he is the biblical King David, right? Uh, But we're also told here that they learn anthropology, psychology, and cybernetics. So this is the classic Star Trek formula of saying two things that are real and one thing that is made up in a list. Wolf has, uh, he's watched some Star Trek. He's mastered this technique. Right. And I just really want to highlight that there are real differences between these two boys and that the narrator's interests are much closer to his father's in nature. And David's interests are really kind of far afield of the expectations of the father. Yes, absolutely. And we are going to see that come up, I think, even in just the next section that we'll get to in in our next episode. Here, the narrator launches into a memory of, of one particular lesson on one particular library trip. David, he tells us, was only half paying attention to the lesson because he's really trying to read an illustrated Tales from the Odyssey without Mr. Million noticing and this was what I was like in school, too. I wanted to do my own learning on my own time and not pay attention to the lessons at all and was always trying to sneakily read some other book. Right. It's hilarious and significant in, in many ways. The funniest part of this section is that Mr. Million makes them respond to a roll call and there are only two boys in the classroom. And as if you could hide your disinterest or lack of engagement when there are only two from a robot tutor. I mean, it's just it's just so funny, but Mr. Million seems to let it slide. He has a real kindness streak in him that's also firm and loving. I, I love this Mr. Million character. Yeah, I do too. And, and 
we're, we're about to get into this. I'm, I'm actually super interested in this lesson because it's going to tell us a lot more about this world. But also, I think Mr. Millian's a pretty good teacher. I think there's actually some great pedagogy to, to be learned from this scene. And as someone who teaches, I was taking notes in my other notebook. Yeah, he uses some very strange methodology that I don't think I've seen in place anywhere else in literature or in the classroom. Let's get into it. So Mr. Million wants the boys to discuss some stone implements that are in an exhibit here in the library. These are reproductions of implements made on St. Anne, which we now learn explicitly is a sister planet to the one where this library is located. Would you call them alien stones? Oh, that's yes, fantastic. They are, in fact, alien stones. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. We also learn here that these implements were made by abos, that is, aboriginal inhabitants of St. Anne. They weren't made by humans. And finally, we learned that there weren't any abos on this planet, only on St. Anne. And to be clear at this point, we don't know what the name of this planet is. We only know that the other planet, the sister planet, is St. Anne. Well, now we're going to come to the part of this that I, I really love, which is getting the boys to think about the people or the, the creatures, perhaps, who made these tools and what their society and culture were like. Mr. Million asks the narrator whether he feels that these stone implements occupied a central place in the lives of their makers. But then he instructs the narrator to say no. He tells him how he has to answer the question, but then demands that he defend the position that he's assigned him. And I have to say, I like this teaching technique. Tomorrow afternoon, my students are discussing a text I've assigned them. They have questions I've given them ahead of time. I always give my students a reading guide. But I am tempted to just try this out in class tomorrow, to call on a student randomly, ask a question that maybe wasn't on the guide, tell that student what the answer is and make make her defend it. Yeah, it's amazing. I you have to have real I think trust between student and teacher to to pull this off. This is something even I think Socrates didn't attempt in his own classroom, but what this does is force students to think critically about their maybe biased or inherent position on a topic and force them to assume the opposite position. We see in this episode, once again, the narrator's dark imagination, his narrow goals, his narrow focus at play, which is really focused on destruction. And it's it's wonderful in terms of the pedagogy and the teaching style in the classroom and what we learn as readers about the world, but also in terms of the psychology of the narrator, at least as a child. These questions are going to give us more opportunity to see how these two boys differ from each other, which I think will be fun to dissect, so to speak. The narrator scrambles for a defense of this position that's just been assigned to him while he's trying to think of something. Of course, his his brother is kicking his shins under the table, as, as brothers like to do to each other. But the narrator comes up with a defense that I, I quite like. He says that these tools wouldn't have been the most important tools for this culture. They didn't really need obsidian arrowheads and bone fish hooks to get food. Rather, they would have used nets for fishing, and they would have used snares for trapping animals, and that they probably gathered most of their food from plants anyway. And he then snarkily adds that these stone implements got in the glass case here in the library because those other, more important tools had rotted away over time, and these stone tools are all that's left. The people who make their living as archaeologists 
have to pretend that these tools were important in order to go on making their livelihood as archaeologists. Yeah, this is Wolf's classic disdain for the university system um, in the 1970s, and, and, and he really kind of starts his critique in the 60s. Yeah, and this really just calls to mind immediately Trip Trap, which is about an archaeologist, and we get a whole diatribe about how terrible academic departments are. So really... We've seen all three of Wolf's first three professional published short stories at play just in these first 10 pages of The Fifth Head of Cerberus. As I said, I mean, if Wolf somehow, whether it's Gene or some genealogy of Wolf is the narrator of this story, he is paying homage to himself in a fascinating way. But I mentioned the darkness of the narrator's mind here. And he says, when he talks about why the aboriginals wouldn't need the tools that that are still behind, he narrowly focuses on that they could just poison the water with the juices of certain plants because that's the most effective way to fish. And then he says that driving animals through the woods with fire is more effective than hunting. He's looking for a distinct outcome with like a narrow goal instead of looking at the whole system that contributes to how these things operate. And we're going to see in David's response a real understanding for how the natural world operates and the respect that is due to people who live in primitive conditions. Yeah, and I really love this reading that you have of these different answers that they give because I saw sort of something that's relevant to my life here in these two answers that I, I, w- I want to talk about. But I want to first actually just read David's answer because I think it is a beautiful speech about this culture that has gone extinct, these people who no longer exist. So David, in defense of these stone tools were important, says, if you could have asked them, they would have told you that their magic and their religion, the songs they sang and the traditions of their people were what were important They killed their sacrificial animals with flails of seashells that caught like razors, and they didn't let their man father children until they had stood enough fire to cripple them for life. They mated with trees and drowned the children to honor their rivers. That was what was important. And what I love about David's position here, and really about this entire exchange, is that it nicely encapsulates two different approaches to studying historical human cultures. The narrator takes up what is called historical materialism, and we actually talked about that a little bit when we were covering Operation Ares. And this claims that what really shapes and defines a society is how it gets its food, how it controls its environment, and the relationships among different types of people people who are engaged in different aspects of that work. But David, on the other hand, champions cultural history, right? The position that our attitudes and our values, our belief systems are what shape us, not how we get our food. It's often very difficult to reconcile these these two positions actually in our field. This is something of a debate in my own field of uh, late antiquity and the early Middle Ages about whether the collapse of the infrastructure of the Roman Empire is more important or if the growing cultural influence and intellectual project of the universal Christian church is more important in the story that we tell about these centuries. Yeah, it's amazing. And and it's just gives us the worldviews of these two children in in just a matter of moments, whether they're assigned the position or not. I think we get a sense of who they are from the way they talk about these things. We're also told here that the aboriginals, at least in David's position or understanding of their lives, mated with trees. 
and drown the children to honor with their rivers. This kind of project of man fully merging with nature becomes more significant in works later fiction, particularly the book of the new sun, the future of humanity is reliant on its ability to merge, to mate with the natural world. Yeah. And I wasn't really sure what to make of that here, if that was just David's own poetry, especially given that even while he is making this speech, his mind is really much more on illustrated tales from the Odyssey, where in fact, there are trees that you can mate with. Those trees also happen to actually resemble beautiful women more than trees. But this seems to be the world that he's kind of inhabiting. He's imagining the Abos as Greeks of Greek mythology. Right. And we'll see here the narrator trying to steal that (laughs) approach to the question from him in just a moment. Yeah, we're going to get another debate here, right? Mr. Million has something else that he wants the boys to take up. And this is the question of the humanity of the Aborigines, these these abos. And here he instructs David to take a negative position and, and to go first. Of course, now it is the narrator's turn to kick, uh, but he finds that David shrewdly has lifted his legs or hidden them behind the, the chair. David makes a pretty simple claim that human is a biological category and that one can only be human if one is a homo sapien. And just as soon as he's done with this simple claim, he goes back to his book, right? In fact, we're told explicitly that he is looking at a picture of the episode with Polyphemus the Cyclops. I'm not going to say anything on this because it's going to serve as a great transition point in our discussion when we get to it. Yeah, awesome. Well, let's get into the narrator's counter argument here, right? He claims that, well, they don't actually know for sure that the Abos didn't come from Earth, that the Abos weren't colonists sent from some prehistoric human civilization. Mr. Million does not buy this argument. And in fact, he now instructs the boys to take the opposite positions without repeating the arguments of the other. Again, this is an awesome pedagogical technique. This might work better if you're just tutoring the two children of a, a wealthy brothel owner. I'm available. <laughs> just, to, just to be clear, <laughs> it sounds like a great job. So David now says, and, and simply again, that the abos are human because they are all dead. And what he means by this is that If the Abos were alive, it would be dangerous to recognize their humanity because they would want to be treated well and not exploited by colonists, by invading settlers. But since they are dead, it's much more interesting if they had humanity, but the settlers from Earth killed them all. Yes, that's right. And it's interesting, again, in this academic sense that we've discussed before, it doesn't need to be true to be speculated upon or for a position to be developed in the academy. And it's Wolf poking fun once again at the certainty with which he finds many people in the social sciences speaking about the past. And these questions are going to end up being themes, not just here in this first novella, but these are threads from this story that Wolf is going to tug on again in the next two novellas when he is exploring this world further. Well, with this library episode, this this library memory brought to an end, the boys and their robot tutor return home, and we get some more impressions of life here in Port Mimizon. For example, we learned that there is a garrison in a citadel that sounds bugles that can be heard throughout the city. It's another beautiful sensory description there. 
We also learned that the city is dirty. And we also learned that the city is dependent on gas or oil lamps that require being lit every night. If you are thinking of Gilded Age New Orleans right now, you're not wrong. That is what this city is. It is New Orleans circa 1835 or so. Well, as the trio arrives home, they encounter the first revelers who are also arriving at their house, arriving at the brothel. And here we learn that the brothel is known as the Maison du Chien, or the House of the Dog, because of a statue of Cerberus that greets customers as they arrive. We get a description of this uh, of this statue. One of the heads is snarling. The center head is disinterested and aloof, while the third head grins. But here, really at the end of this section and the, the close of our recap on this episode... We also have this comment from the narrator who says, well, the name of the brothel, Maison du Chien, may also be a play on our last name. And of course, this is about dog and wolf, right? Exactly. And again, we see here the use of the phrase, I suppose, which is, I think, going to be a marker as we go forward. I'm excited to find out. It's my speculation that um, we're going to see, I suppose, come into play more in this story. And it's going to be a signal that the narrator is trying to make sense of the past without having a, a kind of objective meaning he's able to cohere to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's almost being a, a detective of his own life, a detective of his own experiences. That's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brennan Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. We'll be back in just a few days with a discussion of this section of The Fifth Head of Cerberus. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.